Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was called was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like a white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, like refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a so sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. That is good. We could end on that. That is a good word. I get to unpack. Elena, thank you for doing that. We asked her to do that last minute, and she killed it. She said, I'm not a speaker. We're like, you are today. So, Elena, <laughs> thank you for doing that. So Revelation, uh, some light reading over the next few months together. Uh, what comes to mind when the book of Revelation, or some of us say it incorrectly, Revelations is brought up, just in your head? You don't have to shout it out. You don't want to be that awkward one. But it's a, it's a doozy. Some of the words might be the end. The rapture, the number seven, the four horsemen, if you're a big left behind series reader, the Antichrist, six, 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 judgment, vengeance, the second coming, heaven, hell. All that is a lot. 
And we as a church are going to take September, October, November and walk through the book of Revelation. What's interesting, even in that list, two of the things that I think are most associated with this book due to popularity, the 80s, 90s, 2000s of rapture teaching, people who taught on the rapture, a guy named Jenkins wrote too many books on Left Behind, I think it's 16 total, but rapture and antichrist are not even mentioned in the book of Revelation in reference to the end time stuff. Yet some of us, when we think about Revelation, we want to talk about this timeline and rapture and this Antichrist character. And I'll tell you exactly who the Antichrist is. I know who he is. He's, we fill in the blank. But Revelation doesn't even mention those two words. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to just give you an overview. This will give some of you anxiety. The rest of you will be like, it's a big undertaking. That's how we're going to walk through the book of Revelation. So we're trying to see the forest more than we're trying to stop at each tree and look at the bark endlessly. We're going to see the forest that is the book of Revelation, which is the end to the canon as we know it as Protestants. This is the end of God's spoken word to us on earth. It's the book of Revelation. So we're going to start Revelation 1. We're going to take it about a chapter, two chapters at a time. Kind of there's all these big images that go together. Rather than stopping and trying to figure out what exactly this angel's eyesight means, we're going to look at the whole totality of each of those things. And wrapping up near Advent will be just in time. Our Christmas trees will be up. All things be made new. Revelation 21 and 22. But here's what I know. Revelation has wowed people, confused people, scared people, but also edified people for thousands of years, depending on the approach you take. I just want to read some of the comments on the book of Revelation that are less than gracious. Frederick Nietzsche This is the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all of recorded history, the book of Revelation. One author says, John the Divine's grandiose scheme for wiping out and annihilating everybody who wasn't of the elect. And then himself climbing up himself right on the throne of God. It's a book that has in it none of the real right on the throne of God. A book that has none of it the real Christ, none of the real gospel. For just as Jesus had to have a Judas, so did the Bible have to have a book of Revelation. Playwright George Bernard Shaw. This is the curious record of visions of a drug addict. A modern, I won't give the name, but feminist theologian. This is a misogynist male fantasy at the end of time. Another writer says, this is a book that transformed the nonviolent resistance of the slaughtered Jesus into the violent warfare of the slaughtering Jesus. All that to say, people have opinions about this book, like severe opinions. And it all comes down to this. And here's sort of, it's like the assumptions you have about the book. And the intent the book is actually trying to bring to the table. And I think people get the assumptions wrong all the time. People get the intent wrong all the time. So here's the three questions that chapter one answered for us to put us in, I think, the right posture as we head into this. What type of book is Revelation? That'll be the first question we answer. Who is Revelation actually about? And then how should we read Revelation as the church entering here to hear it taught every week for the next few months. So what type of book is it? Who is Revelation about? And how should we actually read Revelation? So I want to pause and just pray and just, we're about to take in a mouthful. We're going to take it today, next weekend. It's a lot. So let's just pause and just in our own hearts, ask God to feed us through his last book in the Bible.
God, you told your apostle to feed the sheep. We want to be fed by your word. We don't want to be entertained. We don't want to be distracted. We don't want to be um, given weapons to use in our cultural moment. We want to be fed to become more faithful. So make that happen slowly, week by week, by your spirit as we sit under your word. Once again, as your church here on earth. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what kind of book is Revelation? Here's our first question. What type of book? And you're like, well, it's a Bible book. It's in the Bible. I, Jen Welkin, a famous teacher, female teacher, writes a lot of books. She says this. The Bible is literature. It is certainly more than just literature, but it is at least that. Meaning we can't just say this is the magical book that dropped down from heaven. It came to us as literature. Songs, poetry, stories, mythical language, she goes on to say. And because this is true, we should strive to navigate its pages with more than just a literal approach. Rather than a literal reading, we should employ a literary reading. Literal means what it says is exactly what it is. So when we see a locust flying through the air, we take it literally. She's saying, no, read it as literature that it is. So what sort of literature... Is it? Revelation claims to be three types of literature. Here's the first one. It's a word that scares some of you. Apocalypse. Like how do you guys use apocalypse in just modern vernacular? Like are the single ladies in here, if you're on the dating app and you see a guy, I'm really into apocalyptic literature. Like whatever way I delete this guy, I never, <laughs> I don't know how it works. It's weird. What is apocalypse? Well, it's right here in the book. Let me just read it. John used this very word. Go to verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. That very first little phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Greek, it's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So John says on the front end, this is an apocalyptic book. Of Jesus Christ. Apocalyptic is like, that's still scary. All it means is unveiling or revealing. It's God is pulling back the curtain to show you something that was previously secret. Apocalyptic reading is God unveils for us so we can see something clear. So the first thing we need to know is this is apocalyptic literature. That doesn't make the rest of it like, oh, okay, I get it now. It's still confusing because here's specifically what John does in most apocalyptic readings are. They use very poetic imagery. They don't pull back the curtain and then have Josh stand up and give a direct statement about the facts of the future. They pull back the curtain by giving these images and using colors and numbers and symbols and speaking all this way. So there's this huge visual in your mind of what's about to come. And he says, that, write that down for the people. That's the apocalypse. Like, how I many of you guys have creative kids? One of my kids is so creative. It's like the hardest one to connect with because he's always just like looking at some vision that doesn't exist but exists in his head. He's like, I see it. John is showing us the vision with poetic imagery. And here's what we got to do so we can sort of release the tension valve of how hard this book is. Specifically, two things he's going to use a lot. He's going to use simile, English people in the room, simile, and symbols. Simile. Symbols. You're like, All right, I feel like I'm back in English. I got to see. I think I can navigate this. Just to show you simile, let's go to verse 12. 
to see apocalyptic writing right before our eyes. So this is John as he actually sees the vision, verse 12, down to verse 16. And if you can, pay attention to the word like. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven, seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Pause right there. Like is used literally to explain something as closely as you can, given there's a thing between you, namely the words I'm going to use. So he's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this. He's not saying, I will declare with 100%, it is this. It's like this. It's like this. I should turn that off, huh? It's like this, it's like this, it's like this. That is simile. So just so you know, all throughout Revelation, John's going to explain this stuff, and he's going to use this word probably most. It's like. That does not discount what he's saying. It just makes us remember he's describing something using simile. It's like somebody asked about hell one time to one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller. He says, the Bible uses fire. It's like a, it's like a. And he's like, I think the Bible uses that because that's the closest thing it could use to get to it. But it's far worse than anything our language could convey. And the guy's like, oh, that's revelation, both for the dark judgment side and the beautiful vision of Jesus side. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. But here's the other thing. And this is the thing that gets people caught up so much. This is what keeps Channel 21 TV preachers in business for longer than they should be is the symbols. There's symbols upon symbols upon symbols. Throughout the book of Revelation, animals, numbers, colors, mythical figures, and cultural objects are going to be used to describe the vision that John actually sees. Let me just remind you, John sees all this. This is not fake. He actually sees all this. So he's not making up symbols. He's describing the symbols as he looks up from the island of Patmos. I see this, animals, colors, numbers, and they're all Symbols and people take those symbols and then they run with it. What do the locusts mean? It's helicopters, obviously. <laughs> From Russia. <laughs> obviously. It's symbols. And just to like really take some of the mystique out of this book, the symbols come from only two places, just so you know. So like the modern readers heard this and they weren't nearly as confused. They come from Jewish literature, namely the Old Testament. So they hear stuff, and it's like mostly Daniel getting repeated. And then also the next one is the cultural moment they're in, namely the Roman Empire. So he uses symbols completely from Jewish literature and Roman culture so that the readers hear this, and they're hearing stuff from their past. They're hearing about lampstands, like the Holy of Holies. And the priest's robe and gold and white. And they're hearing about Rome and the seven stars. And it's all making sense to the symbols of their day. But they are just symbols. It would be like this. If modern day we wrote the book of Revelation, we would use modern sort of American cultural things. I saw a donkey fighting an elephant. 
And I saw an eagle swoop in and swallow them both up. We'd walk out here, none of us would be like, I wonder what he's talking about. He's talking about the political parties in our country. That's sort of how Revelation gets heard to the first century hearers. For us, we got to like transport back into the cultural moment to make more sense of it. Just so you know, that's where the symbols are coming from. It's not all that complicated, although it's this crazy vision still, even if I'm a first century Jew. It's wild. I want to show this quote from a poet. This is how he describes it. Wendell Berry, wonderful poet, lots of great books, poetry out there. He says this about Christian imagination. The imagination is our way into the divine imagination, permitting us to see holy, play on words, as whole and holy. What we perceive is scattered as ordered. What we perceive is random. So he's like, how do you make sense of the world that seems scattered or random? God gives you a better imagination to make sense of the present day. That is whole, W-H-O-L-E, comprehensive. It has answers for everything and holy, H-O-L-Y. It brings you more into the image of Jesus Christ. How is God going to do that through our imagination? More than maybe often with just reading words on a book. That's what John's trying to do. Like make our imagination big enough to exist here on earth as we wait for heaven to come and meet us once and for all. Make sense? It's sort of like, I'm like, what's the modern day equivalent? I think it's high school. Raise your hand if you liked high school. Like six of us, me and five other people. High school is the strangest cultural phenomenon in America because it like defines you and shapes you so much. Future, like someone asks you what year you graduated, they like judge you based on 97, huh? You're like, I am 79 years old and I'm still being judged for like my high school. It like, it's this, and it's really for the teenagers there, it's like this all encompassing moment. That matters, but it doesn't matter. Tracking? Freshman year matters, but it don't matter. Senior year matters, but it don't matter. We are living in this life that matters. And we get stuck in this bubble of life and culture and who's in charge and government and politics and all these things. And we're stuck here. And how do I get my high schooler to get out of that stuckness? I can just lecture him. Hey, son. This doesn't matter. That guy's going to be fat, I promise. She's going to be divorced three times, I promise. Do not worry. Or I can paint a picture, write a story where these characters become what they're going to become, and then say, son, read this. And then it seeps into his head, and he's like, oh. And then he goes to high school, like, oh, okay. He's going to be fat. I saw he's 500 pounds. She's terrible. This is not to say be a judgy high school. It's just to say we get stuck in the melee of life. John is trying to, like, put our heads up. There's something bigger going on here. First century Jewish Christians and now 2023 Christians here in North Phoenix. So it's first an apocalypse. It's trying to make our imagination see the things that are about to come. Here's the second sort of literature it is. And this is going to sound familiar. It's prophecy. Some of you know prophecy. Most of us think prophecy is... Somebody predicts what's going to happen in the future, and that's half of it. That's part of it. Jesus will be born of a virgin, they said, hundreds and hundreds of years before he actually showed up born of a virgin. But prophecy is this. Let me just say, it's a word given by Jesus to his people to be heard and to be responded to. So prophecy is words given by Jesus himself to someone to relay to another to be responded to. It's also a word given by Jesus that has reports of visions and such. That's the one we mostly think about with prophecy. It's a word given by Jesus that has stuff for us to respond to or a vision or reality that we didn't know existed. And this says it is prophecy. Let's just read it. Verse 3. 
John says exactly what sort of book this is. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. So prophecy is concerned about the future events. It's not nearly concerned with the precise detail that a lot of modern Christian pastors have made us think. It's concerned about that. But it's also primarily concerned with Jesus speaking to the here and now so that we could be challenged in our present day. There's going to be prophetic, authoritative words coming from the text towards us over the next few weeks. So it's apocalypse, it's prophecy, and then finally it's a letter. Verse 4. Let's read verse 4 through verse 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and it was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. Signed, the Almighty. It's a letter written to real people, passed around a real... I've been to Turkey. I've been to a few of these places. This was really a letter passed around. Domitian is the emperor of Rome at the time. Rome is trying to fulfill their destiny to take over the world. Pax Romana and Roman Empire. All this is happening. And this letter gets delivered to Ephesus, Thyatira, and Smyrna, Laodicea. And they read it. And just to bring it context, they're much smaller churches. They're like house churches. So this is the equivalent of like us sending a letter to our small group ministry, RCs. And they open it. And the field's RC opens it and reads a letter. And it's going to get real awkward in the coming chapters because he calls people out. So you picture you're in a room of like 15 people. And in Ephesus, some of you, there's like 12 of us. Some of you, it's a letter that gets passed around to shape the people of God in a real context. This letter was not written to us. It was written for us. But this is a letter initially planned and given to the first century church as it got passed around Western churches. And now we get to benefit from it. But it is not to us, it's for us. So this is an apocalyptic book that's trying to make our imagination more in line with God's plans. It's a prophetic book giving us visions and reality, but also speaking to us how God wants us to change as a church. And it's also a letter, God meeting real people on the ground that we're going to learn from by his spirit as we, 2,000 years later, come to the same book. That's what sort of book it is. In that context, it gets a little less goofy, like debating who this locust and what helicopter is deterring. It's, it's apocalypse, it's prophecy, it's letter. But it's also a book about someone. What is this book about? That's our second question, and maybe the most important question. Who is Revelation about? All the third grade church kids say, Jesus. But first, let's meet the author, verse 9. I'd say this book is about two particular people. Here's the author who's going to bring us the story. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are on Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Pause right there. Patmos is like a 
prisoner island off the coast of Turkey. For you older folks, 40s and above, Alcatraz, back in the day. He's at Alcatraz. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he's in a prison encampment, and he's worshiping on the Lord's day. And he gets brought up in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So this book is about John, kind of, in so much as he's the author bringing us the story. But the, the supporting cast of this church really is verse 11 there. He, the Spirit tells John this, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, to Laodicea, and by extension to North Mountain 2,000 years later. The supporting character throughout this whole book is the church. Those striving to be faithful witness. Those, the word used throughout Revelation is the conquering ones. Those who conquer. This book is way more about a faith that lasts until the very end where you prove yourself faithful. Not to earn your salvation, but to prove that you really had salvation the whole time. It's to the church. So we, by the extension, the invitation of the Holy Spirit, are sort of main players in this book of Revelation. So we must insert ourselves into the story to hear what God says to the churches. But we are not the main character. The main character is introduced in the vision. The first thing John sees, let's read it. We read it already. But let's read verse 12 through 16. I'd like you to meet the main character. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Interesting. Just so you know, those of you who aren't believers yet, not Christians, this is how faith works. I heard a loud voice. I heard something. And then John turns to see. The way you become a Christian is you hear the good news. And then you turn, and by faith, you see that which you didn't see before. And this is what John is displaying here. But he sees this actual vision. Here it is. It's on the screen if you want to track with it. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and in his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That will preach. That's the main character. And here's also what God, the author, is doing. Do you remember the first time Jesus showed up? He was despised and rejected. Nobody would look his way. He was the most forgettable face in the crowd. I'd like you to meet that same person, Jesus Christ. I turned to see him, and his eyes are on fire, and his hair is white like wool, and he's got bronze feet. John's saying, that Jesus, that season for Jesus is over. Here's Jesus now and forever, this one right here. This is the Jesus we worship now, church. And then he goes and uses all these illustrations. The number seven in Jewish thought is for completeness. We'll get to the seven lampstands and all that. But this is Jesus in his complete church, complete control. The lampstand standing around him at the end of this says where the church is in the spirits of the church. Jesus standing in the midst of his church in total control. This is all my people. I've got this. And then you walk down, just walk 
with me through this. Then he's described with this long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Robes were worn by kings often, but in the New Testament, robe seven times, out of the seven times it's used, six times it's for the high priest. Jesus is the great high priest. In the most simple language, what's a priest? You have God here, you have man here. How does man and God come back together? The answer in every religion is some sort of priest. And Jesus says, I am the great high priest who no longer has a gap between God and man. They have come together once and for all. He's wearing the high priest probe, robe, just like Hebrews says. What else do we see on here? We'll keep walking down here. White is perfection, is purity, is heaven, is power. You see his beautiful hair just... Is, is that exactly what Jesus' hair... That's not the point. It's like wool, snow. But from the top of the head is perfection and purity and heaven-like attributes. His eyes of fire, eyes that can pierce through anything. Like most people, if they take the cultural concept of God, it's like an old man, a grandpa, who's not senile yet, but is still caring and locked into your life, but like... He's closer to being senile than to being any sort of authority figure. That's God if we walk out of here and let culture tell us what God is. And Revelation says his eyes are like fire. He sees through everything. Every heart in this room he sees right through. Every preacher who is standing up this morning to preach across the globe, he sees right through me. He knows it all. There's nothing hidden. I see it. His eyes are like fire. That should... Allow some of us to rest and some of us to sit a little uneasy in our seats. Burnished bronze are his feet. What is that all about? Does God have bronze feet? Most commentators would say he's proven his walk. He came as a baby. He walked on the same earth you and I walk in. He was tempted. He was tried. He was tortured. And at no moment in his life did he ever swerve from the righteous, holy commands of God on his life. He stayed faithful. And the Bible talks about burnished bronze as that which is uh, tested by fire. Jesus was tested like you and I, except he excelled in every possible way. And now he stands on a good foundation. He's done it all, except for all the bad that we've done. He's been through it, and he can be... Trusted. His voice is like the roar of many waters. That's the authority of him. Like it's dad voice times a billion. And he's got the seven stars holding in his right hand. This is fascinating. So seven stars in his hand. As this letter gets passed around to the churches in Turkey, they have something in their mind, maybe in their pocket. Because there's a coin going around this time to show it to you. So Domitian is the emperor. This is a coin made for his deceased son, who was supposed to be the next emperor. And around him are the seven stars. The emperor holds the seven stars, which is hilarious. I can make fun of him because no Romans are around right now. But the seven stars are the planets, at least as they could see. I know we kicked Pluto out, but they're still, you know what I'm saying. They're like... They don't even understand the stars enough 
to have a full picture of what they're saying on this piece of coin. And the thing they're worshiping is a deceased baby. And now John sees a vision of Jesus Christ holding the stars in his hand to say, I know the world feels like it's in charge. I know high school, junior year feels intense, but it's not the final say on your life, young man, young woman. I've got it right here. I'm holding it all in my hand, Jesus says. It's beautiful. And then he's got a sharp two-edged sword, which simply means judgment. The next time he comes is not to save anyone, but to judge all of us. That's the book of Revelation. He's coming back more fierce than ever, and he's got a sword of judgment in his mouth. And then finally, the last statement, just to show you the beauty of God. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What is a shining face in the Bible? It's the favor of God upon you. Jesus gets baptized. The Spirit, God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You get to the end of the Bible, God's face is shining on him. He doesn't even have to say it, but that right there says God is well pleased with him. That's our king. That's why we gather. Verse 19. The angel then talks to John. Write, therefore, these things that you've seen. And those that are and those that are going to take place after this. And as for the mystery of those seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the churches, guarding angels of the churches of the world. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What's this book about? It's about Jesus who holds us in his right hand in total power. But it's also about us, church, so we don't get to come to this without us being implicated by the text. So this is the last question for our kickoff to Revelation. It's simple. How should we actually read Revelation? I wrote down a few options that some of us have partaken in. It's an interesting end times Bible study. Time to get around, have coffee, and talk about all the goofy ways people have talked about this. My favorite book, as I research, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ is Coming Back in 1988. (laughs) A little dated. It's a fantasy that's a little too out there to understand. Some of you are still sort of, I don't know, it seems out there. I promise you it's more accessible than you realize. It's not just fantasy. Here's another thing that a lot of folks, it's a deep dive into the end of world characters that we need to be looking out for. That'll be fun. Or it's a Bible book about stuff that really doesn't matter or apply to me. I don't think we're going to be as caustic as those initial Nietzsche's of the world with harsh things to say about Revelation. But a lot of us, if we're honest, our nature is like, it just seems a little out there for what I'm going through in my life. Like, I'm a young, single guy. I'm just trying to get a date. I'm a young, married girl. I'm just trying to figure out how to like this guy that I thought was way better than I expected when I said, yeah, you know. Does this have anything to say to me? Just so you know, all the, like, theological stuff I'm sort of poking at, we will address. I have convictions about stuff. Our church leaders have convictions about end times and how it all works. It's just that's, Revelation doesn't start with that. It starts with a beautiful vision of Jesus that invites us into But we'll get to some of the questions some of you have. But here's what I think Revelation is doing. Here's the first thing. God wants to transform us by reading it. Go back to verse 3 with me. Here's how John describes this 
gnarly book that he gets to pen for us. Blessed, blessed, happy, joyful. Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the Bible, lucky. We're lucky to get to read this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written for the time is near. Blessed if you read it aloud, check. Blessed if you hear, double check. Blessed if you keep, do, obey. That's up to you and me. We got 67% of it done this morning. Blessed are you who keep the words that are written. Revelation wants to change you more than it wants to entertain you. Like in surgical, painful ways. It's an intense book. And its intensity does not lie in the future events. It lies in the present spirit conviction that's going to fall upon us as we dive into it. Two quotes from authors I respect. This book is not here simply to predict the future, but it's to prepare us for the present. Predicting the future is part of it, but as John wrote it and passed to the churches, he was trying to prepare them for their present, and the Spirit is trying to prepare us for our present. Another one of my favorite professors of all time, Dean Fleming says, to grasp revelation, we must let revelation grasp us. You will be changed if you stand and read aloud the words if you hear the words and you do the words, God wants to change you. And just to give you some handlebars so you can kind of not do the Christian dodgy thing that we're all good at and kind of never get hit by anything. Just like Floyd Mayweather. Here's the two ways I think God wants to change us mostly. And this comes from the first is facing the compromise we are a part of in the current cultural moment. Sexually, politically, financially, medicinally. God wants us to face how we are compromising to the culture that is in charge right now. First one. Second one, he wants to change our view or transform our view or sharpen our view of faithfulness. Faithfulness throughout this book is conquer. And the way revelation shows conquering happens is through a bloodied, sacrificial lamb. How are we going to be faithful in this culture? We're going to model Jesus' lamb-like qualities. I see the shirt everywhere, lions, not lambs. We're lions, we're not lambs. Maybe you, dear friend that I love and line up with a lot of politically, but that's not what scripture says. Follow the way of Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me. That's good. You're, some of you are like, I'm out. I'm just, revelation is intense. And God's going to put it on us over and over and over and over again. But here's what I think revelation is going to do beautifully, more than I even realize, is God also wants to touch us through the book of Revelation. Like, come near and touch us. Just read with me, verse 17. This is John still seeing a real vision that actually happened. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Pause right there. So picture Jesus 
hair like snow, eyes on fire, feet like bronze, holding the churches in his hand, the most victorious picture of a king anybody could ever imagine. And John sees him, and John falls to the ground. And what does Jesus do to John as he lays at his feet? Here's what he could do. He'd be right. He could kick him. Figure it out. He could do the religion answer and drop him a how-to manual. Here's how you pick yourself up, young man. Call it Mormonism. Call it secular humanism. Call it sexual revolution. Whatever you want to call it, it's all the same. How do I pick myself up and do this life? He could have dropped that down on him. He could have walked away. I don't have time for this. I'm the king of the universe. Keep reading. Instead, that mighty figure, Jesus, laid his right hand on him, saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. How does John get touched? According to this vision, it's only if Jesus stooped down to get close enough to touch him. And what's he do when he's down there? He shares with him the gospel. I am the first. I am the last. I lived. I died. I rose again. Get up. And I hold the keys to everything that matters in my hand. You can't figure any of this out, but I have the keys to everything that matters. Get up, young man. God is going to touch us over, even as we're plowing through judgment that just is rocking our souls. There's going to be glimpses of a God who comes down and touches us and shares with us the gospel. The fact that it's not about what we can do. It's about what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. Amen? He lived. He died. He rose again. And those of us by faith who trust that now sit secure at the feet of this wonderful king we get to study for the next few weeks. We get to go on a wonderful, scary, beautiful journey together as we open up this book. Let's pray together. God, help us to um, humbly continue to put ourselves in a posture of learning, not simply for the sake of learning or entertainment or talking points or theological knowledge, or any sort of do-goodism in us, but to know you. So God, for those of us in this room that have come yet again to another Sunday gathering, I pray that we leave here knowing you just a little bit more. And more than that, wanting to know you more deeply and beautifully than we do now. So God, as we walk through Revelation, be gracious to us as we unpack a a book that has stumped people for years. So pray that we don't get haughty with our interpretation. But I also pray we don't get uh, cynical and walk away from it before it actually changes us. Let us sit right in the sweet spot of being under your word, filled by your spirit as we gaze upon your son. We love you. Amen. Amen.